0: Welcome to the High Value Customer Podcast, the show for business leaders to learn how to attract and retain high value customers. This week's guest is Alpesh Doshi from Fintricity, based in London, England. Fintricity helps companies looking to use data and AI to be a digital business in the 21st century. They help you to understand the value of your data and change your business model to leverage that data. Thanks for coming to the show, Alpesh. Welcome. Hello. So, Thank you. First things first, can you um, tell us a quick story about how you've got to where you are now in your career, in your business? Uh, well,
1: I mean, I have I've been a, I work in uh, basically in computing and technology, and I've been doing computing since I was a young kid when my brother, uh, who did computer science at university. Uh, and since then, since the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, I've been always wanting to go into tech and, and computing. Um, and over, over the years, I, you know, I've seen the, uh, how technology was going to change businesses. And I've always been passionate about applying emerging tech to any business problem. And as we've seen the internet, the web, you know, I, was, I, I left university pre-web, where before the web existed and started using Yahoo in 1993, which obviously gives my age away. Uh, but uh, you, you knew that the web was going to be huge. You knew that... Uh, uh, data is going to be huge, and hence over so the last twenty odd years, I've been working in in creating businesses and helping companies um, use use new technologies uh, uh, to help them transform their business.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about your ideal customer. Who would be the most amazing company for you to work with? What sort of company? Uh,
1: I mean, the, the ideal customers for me always frankly, you know, like-minded people, you, 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 you know, it works both ways. If you've got com- customers who you work with who have the same sort of, are on the same wavelength and have the same kind of perspective on the market, they're the ideal customer. When you talk to them, and generally it's an individual, you know, it's not necessarily a company, it's pe- individuals in those businesses who are passionate about the innovation, passionate about how, technology can transform the business and obviously data is going to transform the business. They're the ones, frankly, that you get on with really, really well because you're on the same wavelength. You have the same conversation. You, you, you can resonate with them and they resonate with you. And those are the ideal customers who who feel that they want to change your business. And obviously that they, they see that, that you're thinking and how you, how you think, how you deliver, uh, is is going to be is going to be in line with their culture and how how they're how they're thinking about how the business should should transform.
0: And does it matter how big they are? Does it matter if they're you know turning over billions or millions, or does it not make any difference?
1: No. Well, um, obviously, the larger the business that you are, the harder it is to make change happen. And obviously, the larger the business you are, you know, dealing with the CEO is great, but actually, you're having to deal with the all the senior stakeholders actually make change happen. Um, what, what, what I find is medium sized companies are a lot more amenable and open. And if you deal with the CEO in the same wavelength, they're the one, frankly, that we, we do well with if, if we, um, if we work the largest, the large business, then it's, you know, a division in a business that you can work with. We're not, we're not a large, you know, tens of thousands of consulting firm. And so therefore, there's no way a large company like a very very large company would work across a whole business with you it's just not going to happen so therefore it's either a division of a large company or generally a medium to medium-sized companies and honestly i like working with startups and early stage companies because they're in a position to create their their business leveraging the data leveraging ai to actually at the beginning at the, from the ground build that business for them so we you know i like to work across businesses I guess
0: the startups haven't got such a legacy to, you know, over overthrow. No, they haven't. They haven't got legacy. And, you know, as, as, as for me,
1: the startups today are the big conglomerates of tomorrow in any sector. And if they get the foundations right and they build the right business model and operating model, um, then, you know, they will be the ones that be large businesses. And I'm just passionate about entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur myself. I'm, I'm passionate about other entrepreneurs and helping them, uh, succeed.
0: So talk to me about how your uh, ideal customer might have changed over the the period you've been in business. How how long has been has been around for?
1: Well, our brand has been around for nearly 20 years, but we've done different things. Um, currently our business is now about, uh, it's always been about emerging tech and applying emerging tech. And we've seen waves of trends of emerging tech. So social media back in 2008, Data obviously in 2010, blockchain happened in 2014. But what we're seeing is these cycles. So what you see is cycles of uh, early adopters, but then you know the wave goes away. And you know around data and an AI, we've seen AI sort of merge as a category in the last five years. But adoption of AI is pretty early, Mm. Um, you know. And so what we're seeing is the next effectively growth stage. of of that and so that's where we're after is I, I've made mistakes in my career where you are too early to apply something and it actually data and AI we have been pretty early in all of the stuff but we're seeing now um, definitely a lot more uh, interest and actually commitment from companies to actually transform their business with data and AI and therefore it, that the timing is a lot better than it than it was.
0: So it sounds like the the sort of the cutting edge technologies that you've been working with has changed, but probably the the ideal customer for you is someone that's passionate about these things and trying to find yeah. like the competitive advantages by implementing the newer yeah, technology so, that's around. So it sounds yeah, like I a fairly consistent theme through the last twenty years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge has always been is you have a, an adoption cycle, and the adoption cycle. Um, you know, data—the data stuff around what was called big data started ten years ago, and we're still in the early stages of actually companies using their data. It's that like ten years away. That's ten years. That's ten years in. So, you know, the the, the challenge isn't the technology really. The talent challenge is adoption and the and the understanding that businesses need to change. And if we take the large digital global businesses, if you look at any of them, the top ten, they're all driven by data. Every single one. Yeah, we all know the Googles and the Facebooks. Uh, Airbnbs, Amazon, etc., cetera, and, and there are some others. They're all worth several hundred billion because they have mastered how to use their data across every part of their business.
0: Mm. So it's really about using the data to create maximum value for the, for the business and I yeah. guess ultimately for the customers. Well, very simply, you have to figure out what your data is.
1: People have talked about the, the phrase data as, a, as, a, as an asset on the balance sheet. Right? So if you look at the balance sheet of Facebook, one of the things they, they say is, is value is the number of people who are on, this, are on Facebook, which is two and a half billion, but also, frankly, the data those people provide to them because that, that's a huge asset for Facebook because they know so much more about people than most other companies. Mm. That, therefore, is a significant value.
0: So put your uh, kind of prediction hat on and talk to me a little bit about what you think the future looks like for your ideal customers. So, you know, fast forward, maybe five or 10 years, think about what, what you think your ideal customers will be, what, what would the world look like for those guys in a five or 10 year period? Well, I think most companies,
1: I, you know, most companies, if they don't transform to being digital end to end, if they don't leverage data, if they don't change the business models or how they charge for services. You know, they won't survive, frankly, you know, because other companies who are smarter, more efficient at at, at the same service you're providing, they'll they'll just replace you because customers will go to them. Mm. So those companies uh, and we've already seen a lot of these companies exist, right? The Facebooks, the Googles, those kind of guys have been doing this for 15 years. There are lots of new emerging companies. Airbnb is an example, which has been around for uh, 10 years, but actually grown maybe in the last six Right. They're a new travel, travel company, new mm-hmm. travel, travel company. Imagine what they've done. They've done an amazing job now. They've changed their business model, given where we are in 2020 and what's happened in 2020. Um, well, fundamentally, if you imagine the travel industry as an example, other companies in the travel market are gonna have to transform. And given what we're, we're in the state that we've been in in 2020, if they don't change, frankly, they're not gonna survive. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it. We've seen these companies are so operationally inefficient, losing large amounts of money and actually, frankly, going nearly going bankrupt. And that's obvious. Hopefully the board in these com- boards in these companies realize, Oh my God, we're not digital. We're not in- we're not efficient. We're going to have to transform. Otherwise we will not survive. Mm.
0: I guess there's always going to be startups like, you know, Netflix coming along and, and superseding blockbuster because they didn't yeah. digi- digitally transform. So I guess if you don't kind of cannibalize your own business, then somebody else is going to come along and do that So. Yeah. You, know, you can't really and I,
1: absolutely, and I think that's right. That's what
0: you see, right? It, is, if companies don't transform,
1: they will fail. Um, Some, not that many, have succeeded. Really, not that many have succeeded in transforming. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the big conglomerates that produce widgets and make things. So it's, it's a different kind of scale, but that still doesn't dif- doesn't change the change the way they do business. So one of the key areas that, that we're seeing growth in is in what are called platforms and ecosystem models. So almost every business is either going to create a platform and ecosystem, a marketplace model, or they're going to be part of one. Mm. Uh, we've seen it in the consumer space. Um, Andreessen and Horowitz, uh, and Horowitz just published a top 100 marketplaces, all consumer marketplaces that exist. That's just 100. There'll be thousands of marketplaces in the next few years been coming and every single company in any market, in any vertical will either be part of a marketplace or will create one
0: if they want to survive. Mm. So talk to me a bit about how your business fits in with that future. Like, how, how are you helping your ideal customers to kind of work towards that, that vision of the future you just described?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I like to think about what their business looks like today. Explain what I I think it could be tomorrow and then explain about how they could go through that roadmap to get there. So whether you're the largest of the large company or a small company, you know, what I like to do is inject ideas around what could happen. What could your business look like? Um, Where is your business now? So as a real example, dealing with a company that's been around for 20 years Mm -hmm. in a real estate and prop tech and, and furniture business, they haven't transformed their business at all. But it's obvious that in their sector, in their particular niche market, a marketplace model, and a marketplace model is very straight. A two-sided marketplace could be a three-sided marketplace, which is three parties are involved. Mm. That unless they transform into a two- or three-sided marketplace model, they will be out of business. Mm. And because they've had the business for 20 years, and they have the value chain, they're in a perfect position to actually transform their business. And that applies to every sector in every market.
0: Awesome. I guess some uh, some markets like, for argument's sake, you know, the example I gave of Blockbuster and Netflix, those kind of retail environments have been transformed. I guess there's a lot of subscription businesses like Dollar Shave Club and, and what have you, and the different types of industries that get impacted, some of them perhaps are slightly earlier adopters and maybe people have figured out how to disrupt them, but the disruption, I guess, is coming across every industry, you know, yeah. like law, tech, or whatever, you know, yeah. very traditional I mean, industries are going to get totally turn, turned off on their head, aren't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at what's happened to e-commerce in the UK. You know, the penetration of e-commerce in the UK was about 20%. 20% just imagine e-commerce retail only 20% of what people bought was done digitally 80% of it wasn't 80% in the last 3 in the sort of the 3 months in 2020 you know march april may 2020 that went up to 33% literally in a very short period of time and let's be honest people are now going to think to themselves why do i need to go into a shop I've not been able to go into a shop for two or three months and I'll be able to buy a lot of things. That Why would I go into a shop? So so therefore, I think the acceleration of adoption of marketplaces and online is going to happen now quicker because people can see that I can buy stuff. Some companies, I I won't name some of the retailers I know, are refusing to create an e-commerce proposition. No, no, we're not doing it. We're going to do a physical store. They will be out of business. They will be out of business because people go online and buy stuff. If you don't want to... If you don't want to transform, and, um, and I'll give you the name, it's Primark, right? Primark yeah, I was, was just really thinking right. Primark. <laughs> Primark, they said, we refuse to create an e-commerce proposition. They will be out of business. Give it five years, three years, five years, they'll be out of business. Mm. This is why, as you know, another example is Ocado. If the supermarkets had realized that online shopping is going to happen and we need to create a proposition, they would have, ne- Ocado would have never had a look in. It wouldn't have a look in. There would have been they would have been, not, wouldn't have gone off the ground. Mm. And look at Ocado now, right? They're now working with Watson, Spencer and Morrison's. You know, The traditional retailers are coming to them and say, can you help us do it? So you can see that, that that's just in retail. If you take any sector, that's going to happen in every single sector.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, talk to me about how Fintris as a company, provides value to your ideal customers. So, you know, if one of your ideal customers come along, like, what would be the value that they're buying from you? Like, what's the the really well, high value stuff that you're going to be delivering?
1: I think the, I think it's in stages. The first stage really is about helping build that vision and that innovation of the company. So. You know, giving ideas to people and saying, here's what the art of the possible is. Here's what your business could look like, both on the basis of our own ideas and thinking, but also going around the market and understanding the market surrounding that particular company and where the market's going and where their position will be in the market. So that's the first thing. The second thing is actually helping them transform. So it's not just about implementing technology. It's not about just data. Yes, it's a, data is a big part of it. It's also about culture. It's about your operating model and how you function as a business. It's about how you spend your money, where you spend your money uh, uh, to improve. Um, And then obviously the third part is delivering it, is actually making that change happen. Not necessarily for large projects, not necessarily on our own, but actually delivering technology uh, uh, and solutions to help make that transformation uh, happen.
0: You were talking to me before the call about, um, I guess, working on, with companies on a sort of more longer term basis and so not necessarily just um, uh, projects. Talk to me about like if somebody was to come on board with you the, what would you be working with on a sort of short term basis? It was more like trying to figure out what the problems are and then implementing them over a period of time and working on like a backlog of different things they need.
1: Yeah, so I mean one of the I didn't really explain my sort of where we would got to in our business but we split the business into two parts. One was the consulting side, the other was the venture side. Given what I've said about data and the value of data in the company, and we've been working with companies to help deliver data platforms over the last 10, 10 years, you realize a lot of the same things, a lot of the things that you've built before are the same. Um, and then if you want to scale it, there, you know, there are some common aspects that you have, everybody needs. So what we've what we've done is created a venture called Kendra Lab, which provides that data platform as a subscription service, so you don't have to, you don't have to build it from day one. You can just get a subscription service. When you're scaling, it it scales with you as a company, and we, uh, and so you don't have to build that infrastructure. And when it scales to the biggest thing, if you say, look, I decide that I'm gonna take this in house, then frankly we'll say, okay, here you go. You can have the whole software implemented in house. And our business model there is a subscription-based model. So you can start small, pay a subscription fee, and as you grow and use more of the platform. You pay to use it as it scales. Uh, And the largest of the large companies, frankly, then decide, well, I want to do this all myself. It's costing me too much to use the subscription service, which is fair, right? As a real example, Netflix. Netflix did that. They started on Amazon, and for the first seven, eight, nine years, whatever it was, they used Amazon. And then they thought, wow, okay, we need to bring this in-house because now this is a fundamental basic infrastructure. We need to spend investing. Mm-hmm. And so they brought all of that infrastructure in-house and they built it themselves. So, so our business model is, is really subscription-based services to help help scale with the business and help manage that, that data layer, that systems of intelligence as, um, as uh, Raylock partners call them.
0: So, talk to me about how you um, how to align your team behind this. You know, you've obviously got some big, bold visions about what the future looks like. How do, how do you get all of your team to, you know, focus on delivering that value and making sure everyone's doing the right things?
1: Uh, it's part of a, a you know a CEO's job to paint the vision, paint the vision, help get buying for the vision, keep hammering on the vision and where you're going, keep getting stake, you know, keep getting team buy in, help help you know, work with the team to get them to give you ideas on how you can, uh, how you can implement it, but also, you know, frankly, feedback on how we should, how we should change, how we should grow. So, you know, any business is a team effort. It's not a one person effort. But vision I'd may be one person.
0: I'd imagine in a business like yours, it's probably um, quite competitive for the sort of people that you want to work for you. So, you know, any kind of cutting edge, kind of technology I imagine there's a lot of different companies that are looking to try and get those people to you know effectively come and join their team so it must be quite
1: yeah quite i mean i
0: think yes and no i think you know there's a with
1: any startup i'm not saying it's unique to us with any startup with different stages of the early stage business you have different kinds of people there's different kinds of people at every stage of the business you know mm. um, obviously anybody who joins you has got to buy into the vision buy into the commercials buy into the team to the tech so yes you're right there is a, a war for talent but I don't think you know it, it's it, it's not impossible to hire people you can always find people who are passionate with with your stuff in the state that you are in the cup in the uh the rewards that you give um, and if if they don't if you don't then they're not the right person anyway so you know, the people that you hire are, are, have to be right for the business and have to understand at, at different stages, different people at different stages. Uh, and there are lots of people out there who don't want to work with large companies. You know, they like innovation. They like new stuff. So there's actually, to be honest, um, more than enough people out there who are interested at different stages of your company. As you become a more, you know, as an early stage, there are frankly a, absolutely a certain set of people that are, are, are um are uh, suited for that kind of business. And as you grow to a medium-sized business, similarly, there's a different set of people probably for that. And when you get to a larger business, again, there's a different set of people that you, you would bring in to run that business. Uh, and we see it, you know, some of the largest companies, uh, some of the companies that have grown up from the start of the scale replace their CEOs as they grow. You know, some don't, like, you know, the obvious one is Facebook and there's lots of other ones that, that uh, are, just have a single CEO. But let's be honest, you know, Mark Zuckerberg may be the CEO, but Cheryl Sandberg is the COO. She frankly runs the business. And she came in very early into Facebook. She's the one who runs the business. Mark isn't the operational guy. Cheryl Sandberg, frankly, created the business model and she has scaled. She scaled Google from a small business to to a huge business. And so she knows how to do it. So that's the kind of people you have to find, you know. Cheryl Sandberg is the is the sort of the power behind Mark and the execution person behind Mark Zuckerberg. And so you um, need those kind of people in your
0: business. Yeah. I've watched a couple of his uh, sort of Facebook live videos and he doesn't come across like a kind of charismatic leader. He's almost like a nervous little kind of guy that's sort of just been put in front of a camera and he's sort of doing what he has to, but he doesn't particularly want to sure, reading he, it off he, a screen. He's a co-founder of
1: the company. Mm. He holds the vision, he holds the direction of the business, you know? Um, and he, you know, he like, like with any, great ceo works with a fantastic team to execute that vision and get feedback on the vision right and cheryl sandberg frankly i have to say she is the she is the person that's frankly made, made facebook five out of 500 billion dollar business mm. without her vision on how to execute and build a business model scale the piece this facebook wouldn't be what it is today mm.
0: So imagine one of your riding customers come to you and write you a check for a hundred grand. Talk to me about what they would be getting for that. Like what would it get them? How much time would it take to deliver that stuff? You know, just imagine that scenario. What, what, what would I get if I wrote you a check for a hundred grand?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing for me is all about delivering outcomes faster. So one of the key things, whatever money somebody gives you, it's not about let's do a face thing and spend six months talking about stuff. It's let's execute and deliver, think about the vision, but actually deliver something tangible in a very short period of time. And generally, you're talking three months to deliver some tangible outcome. Um, and so for me, it's, all, it's always about outcome. So you may have a grand vision, you may have a direction, you may have a roadmap, but you break that down into a very small step using Agile and Scrum as part of the changing operating model and change the way of working culture to deliver some outcome really quickly. Give an outcome within three
0: months. Give me some examples of some of the things you might better deliver in three months. Like what sort of outcomes are you talking about?
1: Well, it, it, it could be, it, it, you know, there's many different outcomes you can deliver, right? You know, you could deliver an, a report that gives some insight into something the company now hasn't known before. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be perfect, right? This is about getting some tangible outcome which uh, the business can buy into, the senior stakeholders can buy into, and not just the outcome, but also the way that the outcome was generated. So that it's both those things, It's not just one or the other. Mm. Um, So making sure that you can, and this is where you work work with the customer. You're saying, okay, well, what's the scope? What it is, okay, let's find something that is, that you guys and we can say, yeah, actually that could be delivered and there'll be a significant business benefit on the back of it. That's what you deliver. And because you're using Agile and Scrum to deliver it, you're iterating on a two week sprint basis anyway, so you might modify what the outcome is uh, within in that sprint, but you decided here's what you're gonna do. You might end up doing something different by the end of the three months, but the point is that you deliver an outcome that everybody's agreed with, and you're going towards that target using Agile, and you deliver the outcome in three months, and everybody's happy, because you know what the outcome is gonna be, and you may have modified it over the time period, so at the end the outcome is, hey, this is amazing, because that's one of the key things. You want to make sure that it's amazing. And people go, wow, okay, we need you to warn of that. And that's what you want to get to at the end of the three months.
0: So you've been running your company for 20 years now. Um, talk to me about how, um, what you've learned over that period. And if, if you was to have a meeting with yourself 20 years ago, what were the things that you'd be telling yourself that you've learned that maybe you'd want to do differently or things that you want to do more of or things that you want to do less of? Well, we don't have
1: uh, three, four hours, five hours. I have hundreds, <laughs> of, the hundreds of things that I've made mistakes on over the years and still, frankly, still make mistakes on. So, you know, it's, it's um, uh, you know, some of the basic things is try to find the best team. Uh, and I have made mistakes in hiring every single kind of person you could think of, from hiring a co-founder, working with a co-founder, hiring CTO, hiring sales people, marketing people, et cetera, right? I've made the mistake on every single role. More than once, unfortunately. You think you learn when you've done it more than once, but you, you, you don't. Um, so hiring, hiring the right team of people that you can work with is absolutely fundamental. That's one of the biggest ones. Secondly, um, on one side, you wanna do, you know, you do stuff. I think, I think going back 20 years, if when you're when you're in your twenties and 30, uh, you're in your twenties, you have more, you have lots of time, and the challenge is, you want to. You know, my what I did was, frankly, when I was twenties, I did trying to do too much. If trying to do too much. Pick one, spend a year on it, focus on it, get it up and running, do it. If it fails, it doesn't matter. But actually, pick something. Mm-hmm. So narrow focus on something that you can deliver, uh, and and uh, give yourself a time period on which you're going to do it. And that's one of the things I would say to my 20-whatever-year-younger self. And if it fails, it doesn't matter. The point is that you found something you focused on, you try to do it, and you, whether you delivered it or not, if you delivered it, obviously you can scale it, and that's fine. But if you don't, hey, it doesn't matter. Um, the other thing that I've learned a lot is market timing. For almost every company that's created, market timing is one of the biggest reasons why people fail. It's absolutely. You, and unfortunately, I've been too early in many markets, many, many markets, so many times been too early on a vision or a strategy or a, or a proposition. Um, and I've learned, unfortunately, the hard way on the fact that market timing, frankly, can make or break a business. It's absolutely key. If you get the market timing right, you want to be slightly earlier, but not too early. And I've been way too early in some of the business I've created. I've been years too early and therefore, frankly, failed. So, you know, the examples that everybody gives, like Friendster. Friendster was around before Facebook and a few loads of other social networks. But the market wasn't ready. Facebook did a great job of being 2004, 5, 6, 7, and the internet was going, mobile was happening, It you know, and the execution was great, right? Um, Reid Hoffman created SocialNet before he created LinkedIn. SocialNet failed, but that was in 2019 2000. Couldn't do it. Right, the market wasn't ready. Um, it took but it took LinkedIn 15 years, 20 years, whatever it is, to get to a point where they got bought by Facebook by Microsoft. But it took them that long, and now they have a steady business. Right now, you would say that they're a legacy business, so market timing is absolutely fundamental. Um, other things are obviously raising funding, you know, raising money is hard. Uh, I would I would always try and get friends and family money in first, build a product, prove it, then find a great gate, gatekeeper of a person who will then introduce you to investors. If, you go in, if you're going yourself to an investor that you don't know, the likelihood of getting funding is zero. I mean, it's zero, unless you're very, very lucky. The, the reality is you're not, you're not gonna get investment by going directly to VCs. The way you have to do it is you build a product, through friends and family, get it up and running. And the beauty right now is you can actually do it cheaper and cheaper. You can build a product and test it way cheaper than you ever could. Once you've got some traction, you have to build a great story. Then you find a gatekeeper who will introduce you to right investors. And that's how you, frankly, that's how you raise money. And There's loads more, but there you go. There's a a few.
0: There's a few. So many answers. I could almost make another podcast uh, (laughs) to what I wish I knew 20 years ago. (laughs)
1: <laughs> for each for each of those, there's a story, multiple stories, which absolutely could be a podcast for for, for a separate podcast. So talk
0: to me about the um, the plans that you have for the future of your business. So how, how do you what, what's your sort of vision for the company and, and how you're looking to grow? So it's you know going back to
1: to what what I said about startups earlier, which is we have some software, we have some prospective customers. On the product, on the Kendra Labs software platform, it's getting to a point where we've got enough customers that we're getting what what's called product market fit, which is saying yes, actually there's traction. Yes, there's people are willing to buy it at this point in time, willing to spend money on it. Yes, you have some pieces right. So what we're doing right now on that particular business is to get those pieces right, and the plan is to raise funding to then scale. So the future is to scale into, you know, a large segment a large business around data AI, that systems of intelligence, that like data layer for a company, that, that's what we're going to do. But the first stages are finding some key customers who are early adopters, who are seeing the value, see the innovation, get on with us, understand the vision, buy into the vision that you, they, they believe, or, you know, what you're talking about, and you, you get on with them. Uh, and the, you know, the future plan is to scale it, to scale into a global business that will take five years minimum it will take five years to do it as if we're lucky if we're lucky you know uh, we do everything right which we won't um, but the idea is to scale but do it on the basis of working with partners rather than doing yourself working with partners and so we've seen the the, the beauty the, the good thing is right now is that a lot of businesses take 10 years to scale mentioned someone mentioned like linkedin and all a whole bunch of others in the it, one market sector, which is um, the RPA sector, a robotic process automation sector, has grown quadrupled in three years. It's quadrupled in three years from 2017 to now. It's quadrupled in terms of size. So the data AI stuff, I think, is similar. You know, I think there's an opportunity to scale it. The, 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 you know, research, research and analysts say there's, the numbers are going to be huge, so, but I think it, it, it's absolutely going to scale significantly.
0: So I, mean, I want to be a piece of that. I want us to be a part of that scale. So just, just to sort of paraphrase and summarize what you said, I think is, um, are you looking to move from more of a service-based business to a product-based business? Is that how yeah. you're strategically well, looking to
1: scale? In ideal world, there's two sides, the consulting side and the venture side. I want to scale both. That's, that's the plan. Um, whether we'll end up saying, well, no, we're doing the consulting and carrying on the product. It's not there yet we're not there to make that decision yet but 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 at the moment it's scaling the consulting one side and 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 and, that. and we've been doing that for many years just delivering solutions and value to customers on that side and then actually creating a separate
0: management team and a separate team
1: and a separate company to scale the Kendra lab side of the business. <laughs>
0: What have you learned over the years about scaling uh, service businesses? Because it's uh, notoriously more difficult to scale a service business than a product business. You can't. You can't scale.
1: You can't scale a service business because it's based upon number of people. My, my philosophy has always been have a core team and have a group of associates. Like like, like, you know, like construction firms do. You know, construction firms don't have large workforces all employed. They bring specialists in, in different, like a plumber or electrician or a you know, plasterer. They'll bring those people in to do that work and to be honest that that economic, that that model is now prevalent it's grown like crazy you know in the last few years and i think it will grow even more where people don't want to be employed by a particular company for 10 years people are still want to be independent and freelance and then work with multiple projects and in the technology sector that's 20 percent of people in uh 20 25 30 percent of people do that already so it's not a it's a model that i see Growing rather than decreasing, so it's core team with a, a large group of associates that you bring in to do projects.
0: So I'm sure we're um nearly two months into the financial year. You've you've already got your plans kind of set and budget allocated and whatever you. But if if you had a, an investor come along and gave you an extra hundred grand to play with for uh, for something that maybe you haven't budgeted for already, what would you spend that hundred grand on? Well, you, you you know what you know if if you're
1: if you know uh, you know where your bottlenecks are, you know where you're going to spend your money. And our bottlenecks are hiring a team. You hire more people. You hire more people to execute on the piece, some of the pieces, and that will be a decision on what, where do you want to do it? Whether it's product or marketing or tech, you know, it, it's it'll be one of those three. It'll be sales, marketing, product, or or tech, software developer. So it be that's where the
0: money would be spent. Cool. So we're almost at the end of our interview and um, just have time for the quick fire questions. Are you ready to answer five quick questions? For us?
1: Go for it. <laughs> I hate these things, but go for it.
0: So what's your favorite business book?
1: So I, I actually don't have a favorite business book. I, I read many, many business books, um, and all of them have different, uh, uh, uh things that you, you, uh, you uh, learn from them. But some of the ones I like, it's very sad, but I like Harvard Business Review because it gives you a short nugget of something which gives you enough detail to understand. And books like Bit Scaling by Reid Hoffman and and his co-author, whose name I can't remember. That's a great book. Yeah, Bit Scaling is something everybody should read if you're an entrepreneur creating a business. Read that. It's a great book. Uh, Massive learnings.
0: The co-author's probably the one who wrote the book (laughs) because he's so busy. (laughs)
1: No, I, I think Reed often did. He wrote he wrote it. So next question,
0: it. your favorite
1: quote. So the favorite quote is actually a quote from a talk talk song. And and he goes, Life's what you make it. And and absolutely agree, life is what you make it. Life's hard, right? You know, and your family and your your kids are all, all, all part of the journey. But life is what you make it, and that, that's probably my favorite quote.
0: Uh, your favorite TED talk?
1: Favorite TED talk. One of the, there's loads of them, loads of TED talks. But one of the ones that I appoint everybody to and I love, and I've watched it 10 times, is Simon Sinek's uh, first TED talk back in 2011. Who, what, how, why. It's a great insight into uh, the emotional side of buying products and services. Great. I uh, uh, got gotta
0: admit, I do love that TED talk. So, last question: um, Dead or alive, who would you love to have as a mentor in your business? Uh, so,
1: the challenge with mentors is what I see in mentors is that you, different mentors have different, um, different uh, things to offer you. So, I can't say I ever have one mentor. I think I have different mentors for different things. Uh, the, some of the key ones around investment, for example, is Ray Dalio, an um, amazing created an amazing business from 1975 to now and his insight into markets into dynamics into economics is amazing i like reading his stuff quite a lot and having him to talk to would be amazing um people like reed hoffman obviously i mean it's it's a bit of a cliche to be honest but not just reed hoffman but people like him who have created businesses failed businesses and created them and been successful i like to learn from those people all the time and reed hoffman is one of the ones but there's lots of other entrepreneurs i look at um that that uh that um are, are are sort of the ones where you do a hell of a lot of learning from who failed who've succeeded failed who've grown stuff uh, and there's a, a big list but uh, those are the, the sort of two i would say that are uh, are um ones that i'd have to have i'd love to have them as mentors
0: so before we end the interview, um, is there anything that you'd like to share with our audience that I haven't already asked you? Is there any uh, words of wisdom or any kind of nuggets of insight that you'd like to, to share with us? Um, wow. God, uh, and I, I uh,
1: you know, these days I actually do mentoring and help startups. Uh, and so um, I love doing that. Not because it may earn you any money, but actually, you know, you want to take all the stuff that you've learned and, and pass it on to people who are starting on their journey now. So for me, that, that's one of the things I love doing. And I, I would say that to anybody. I would say that to anybody, you know, go and be a mentee, be a, sorry, be a mentor to lots of, and it's great. It's great fun. It's great fun doing it. And, you know, I think to myself, if I've not done anything in my life, I've helped at least I can help other people succeed in their businesses that, that for me would be rewarding. It's rewarding anyway, you know, helping companies, helping a, a younger entrepreneurs, uh, drive the direction of businesses. Um, and that, that, that's something that I love doing.
0: So last thing, um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? So luckily,
1: because I've been involved in social media and digital for a long time, I have obvious Twitter handles, LinkedIn pages, email addresses, um, and you can watch my videos uh, on, on co- talks that I've done. So, my Twitter handle is at Alpesh My company Twitter handle is at Centricity. My LinkedIn page is my name, Al- LinkedIn.com slash in slash You can find me there. Um, and you, frankly, if you search my name, you'll find my email address and my phone number online anyway. Um,
0: so, there we go. Cool. Well, thanks very much. It's time to stay, Alpesh. And uh, hopefully, we'll catch up again soon.
1: Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you.